Our scripture this morning comes from selected verses from Exodus 14 and Exodus 15. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that, do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where, they were 12, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks, Susan. So good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue in a series uh, through the book of Exodus. These are really uh, powerful stories, important stories, I think, but I have to admit uh, that I'm a little jealous this morning. I'm jealous because uh, Exodus 14, which uh, Tony Ellswick got to preach on last week, is definitely the high point of the story. It's the feel-good part of this whole part of the of, of the scriptures. And Exodus 15, 16, and 17, which we're going to look at in successive weeks, the next three weeks, is the low point of the story. And so I got the wrong end of the deal if you ask me as far as having to preach on this stuff. But these are important stories, particularly for Christians battling unbelief to trust in Jesus, and particularly, I think, for our church at this moment in time, for all of us, really, as we, uh, as we, but for Redeemer, as we've been in what I would call a desert season as a church for the past year or two. And so I think that these texts meet us right where we are. I told the other pastors, not to overstate these things, but I told the other pastors in our network of churches on Wednesdays we met together that I feel like I'm in a fight for the soul of our church in approaching uh, the next three weeks. And so I just say that because that's, that's just how I feel, uh, because I think there's so many important things for us to learn here. And so I would, I would ask you to do me a favor. Try to be here. If you can't get here, make sure to listen to these sermons, but listen a little harder. Really 
consider the implications of the things the Lord would teach us here. Spend some time reflecting uh, in the afternoon on Sunday or sometime during the week because it's just really, really important stuff. Now, as we do that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the New Testament actually should be in the back of our minds in the coming weeks because there Paul reminds the Corinthians and us of the contemporary relevance of these three chapters as a warning not to fall into the same sins. What's, what's helpful is he lists those sins there, but here's what he says. He says of these people, he says, with, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, there are a couple of quick things from that verse that I would just point out to you by way of introduction this morning. First is that the Israelites didn't go from Egypt right into the promised land. We know that they had to go through the wilderness first. For 40 years, in fact, they wandered in the wilderness before God's promises came true for them. And so salvation for us doesn't mean that your bad circumstances become good circumstances. In fact, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for you this morning, but really when God starts to do something really amazing in your life, when God really starts to show up, it actually starts to feel like things are going from bad to worse. It really does a lot of the time. And so if it's hard, or if it's not going the way that you would like for it to, that doesn't mean something's wrong. It doesn't mean someone is to blame. It just means you're living life in a fallen world. And we are the church militant, not the church triumphant. That means we're forced to live in the wilderness of this world, as Revelation says, in a place prepared by God for us and dependent upon him in every turn, at every turn for life. Now, what it also says there in 1 Corinthians is that living in the wilderness like that can be difficult. It, over, it overruns people. It, it overthrows people. And the word picture there, he said uh, they were overthrown in the wilderness. And that word there is a really specific word. And it pictures a battlefield strewn with dead bodies after the fight is over. That's what the wilderness can do. And so we've got to learn how to live in the desert and to not give in to its temptations. And in 1 Corinthians 10, they're listed that we would begin to desire evil, that we would put God to the test, that we would give in to idolatry, or that we would simply begin to grumble. And that really is the subject of this portion of Israel's story here in chapters 15, 16, and 17. In each of the chapters, there's, a, there's an episode where they begin to grumble to the Lord. Now, we're going to take different themes every week, but this week, it, it happens in all three stories, but it really is the focus this morning. It's what I really want to pay attention to this morning when they begin to grumble against Moses here in chapter 15, verse 24. And it seems like a small thing, but it is actually a really big deal because it's a symptom of a spiritual sickness. And so in Philippians, which we read a minute ago, Paul says... Uh, that when we're joyful and when we're grateful and when our faces are radiant with humility and thanksgiving, the gospel actually is shining through our lives like a bright star on a dark night. But when we're grumpy and chronically critical or, you know, just kind of nitpicky with other people and with things, we actually destroy the work of the gospel. And so there's a lot at stake. And there's a lot at stake here for our church as well because we have to be careful not to fall in a difficult time, into these patterns of sin that can really cause a lot of damage. So we need to ask, what happened to these people? And I think the answer to that question is found in the miracle that God does in this scene, this turning of the bitter water into sweet. Because most of the miracles in the Bible are actually more than miracles. They're parables. 
So they're not just naked displays of God's power to do these things. They're signs. They point to a spiritual reality. And this is a sign of what has happened to them. It's a sign of kind of the circumstance that they're in. What can happen to us? That it's easy to lose perspective when you're in the wilderness and things are hard. And so this story is about keeping the right perspective, staying in the right stories, the way I would put it to you, as you wander through what can be very difficult times. Now, just as a, a silly little illustration, uh, last week, you know, we had our, uh, every year we do a spaghetti lunch to, to help the teenagers go to camp, and we have a, a dessert auction where people bring all, you know, we've been eating dessert all week in my house, which is not a good thing, but um, I, but it's no secret that uh, my my favorite dessert is Connie Lear's pound cake, and I, I, I've told a few people that, and it seems like every time I tell somebody that, their answer is, well, you haven't had my pound cake, and, and that's true. And so for the sake of accuracy, you should probably make me one for my birthday next month so we can settle the issue once and for all. So tell Tutu that, okay, because she's the one of the ones that said that. So I'm waiting on it. So, I, so anyway, I was determined to go home with Connie's pound cake. I didn't care what it cost, and I made a mistake. I made a strategical error because uh, I told people I didn't care how much it cost. So I talked a little too much about it. Because some people who will remain nameless conspired together to bid up the price. And so it got to be about $125 for Connie's pound cake. And, uh, and I like pound cake, but I don't $125 like pound cake. And so I got a little ticked, you know, that these so-called friends would be so mean to do this to me. And I let them know about it. And I let everybody else know about it, too. I badmouthed them in good fun, of course. We were having fun. But... The silent auction ended, and I didn't get pound cake. I had to kind of, you know, settle for something else. And I was sad, you know. <laughs> and then the person who won the pound cake came up and handed me the pound cake and said, <laughs> and said, Happy Valentine's Day. I don't really even like pound cake. <laughs> I was planning the whole time to buy it for you. And you just kept making it more expensive for me to do that. <laughs> and so, it's a good lesson for me. So, now every bite of pound cake comes with a heaping pile of shame on top of it. <laughs> but here's the thing I want you to see, is that here I thought there was this conspiracy to keep me from getting the pound cake, and I grumped about it. When in truth, there was a plan afoot to be generous and kind to me, and I wasn't even aware. I didn't see it. I didn't have the right perspective on what was happening. I wasn't living in the right story. I was making my own story to get what I thought I needed. And, and that's, that's kind of the lesson that we learned from this, from this uh, miracle that is a parable. Uh, three things, really, that I want you to see from, from this text to keeping the right perspective. The first is what we learn is that, number one, in all that God does... He is making the bittersweet in everything that he does in our lives. Even though it doesn't feel like it, he is making bitter things sweet. But secondly, what happens to us is when we lose our perspective and we start to grumble, as these people did, the tragedy of that is that we reverse the flow of that story so that even the sweet things start to become bitter. Everything has a bitter taste when you allow your heart to get into the state that the hearts of these people were in. And thirdly, the only way back, the only way back from, from that state of heart is to have a new experience, a new taste, 
of the sweetness of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ. And if you get that taste of his sweetness to you in Jesus, then you'll lose all taste for anything bitter ever again. And so those three lessons, I think, are really helpful to us. So let's just walk through, beginning with that first lesson that I mentioned. I think the first lesson of this miracle that we learn is that in all God does, even though it doesn't feel like it, even though it remains hidden a lot of times, in all that he does, what is God doing? He is making the bitter sweet because he is the Lord, your healer, verse 26. That is his name. He makes things beautiful. Spurgeon, in a sermon on this text, he said this. He said, we are very apt to talk more about our bitters than about our sweets. And that is a serious fault, he says. If, if it were well, if we had fewer murmuring words for our sorrows and more songs of thanksgivings for our blessings. And I think that's really good and really important. It's a great reminder. Exodus 15 starts with a song. You see it there, verses 1 and 2, where they say, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my song, my strength. He's become my salvation. And and it starts sweet, because God has done amazing things for the people here, and yet it turns sour quickly, because we're told, beginning in verse 22, that just three days, three days, And the people have forgotten the words of the song. And we're prone to forget too. I mean, life has a way of taking the song away from you. And so we need to start with the reminder that the Lord is a God who saves. And with him, bitter becomes sweet. Death gives way to resurrection over and over and over again. And we can be sure of this for a number of reasons. The first is because of the narrative arc of the, the, the meta story in our life, the overarching story, but all of the other little stories inside of that story too. There's a narrative arc of, of the way God works in our life, but then there's also the name that he's given us here, and both are revealed to teach us this lesson. So notice the narrative arc that, that's really happening to these people. It is really astounding that they could so easily forget when you consider all that they had seen God do. Do you see that at the end of chapter 14? I, 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 I put it there for you. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day, and the Egyptians, the, the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians so that people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant, and in three days, all of it was gone. God had taken them from slavery to freedom through a series of powerful miracles. He had turned the Nile to blood. He blotted out the sun and the sky. He had led them in a pillar of cloud and fire. He would rescued them at the Red Sea. And parted the waters and allowed them to walk across on dry land, a miracle in itself. He destroyed Pharaoh and his armies once and for all, erasing any threat that they might be recaptured. And it was all the greatest act of rescue in all of history. Now, would he do all of that so that they would just let, so that he would let them perish in the desert? No, of course not. And yet, while all of that is happening to them, they're, they're seen with their eyes. We read about it, so it's distance front. They are seeing these things with their eyes, and yet they still find it too easy to complain about what is not happening. All of this is happening. And all they can think about is what's not happening. And listen, I live right there. Anybody else? I tend to find myself living right there in the middle of a thousand blessings and yet still frustrated or afraid or sad about the one thing that remains unresolved. I had somebody text me in the first service. He said, listen, I got a $15,000 bonus at work this, this, this year, and two days later got a $300 unexpected bill in the mail and fell apart. 
He said, it's just gross. And yet, it yet is where we all live, just like these people. So that's the big picture. That's the big picture. But consider the details of the story in Exodus 15. They come upon the spring after three days with no water, and, and the water there is very disappointing. The water's bitter. Now, can I just say something to you? It's not a crisis. It's an unresolved crisis, but there's a difference. You with me? Why is it not a crisis? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? See, if God can push back the sea, he can figure this out, I'm pretty sure. But they get swallowed up by the moment. That's what happens to us. They get swallowed up by the moment and they forget the story. Because the story is a story of rescue. The story is a story of resurrection. And, and what is the end of this story, by the way? In verse 23, they experience the disappointment of Mara. They name this spring after, after how, how disgusted they are. But that's not the end of the story. That's the crisis in the middle. Every story is a crisis in the middle. But the, but the point is, don't get caught up in the moment in the middle. When you're in the middle of the crisis, keep going with the Lord because he's writing a story. And here God turns the bitter water sweet so that they have what they need. And they continue on. And in verse 27, the story ends with them at Elam which is this place of 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And I can tell you from being a part, being in this part of the world earlier in, in 2018, that's a huge, um, you know, there aren't many places like that in the desert. This is a huge oasis in the middle of the desert that could have, you know, allowed for all of their needs to be met. So God ultimately gives them everything they need. And it's funny, he tends to always do that. The story resolves, see, so the trick is to not get caught up in the moment. Remember, you're in a story. And the end of the story, if you're a Christian, is resurrection. That's God's promise. Now, you may not see it in this life. It may be through a, real, a lot of really hard, painful things, but it's coming. God is working all things together for good. He's working with a thousand threads in complex ways that we can't possibly imagine, weaving all of them together to make something beautiful and good. That's what he promises. Can I get an amen on that, by the way? I mean, you with me? And so there's this narrative that we can trust, but there's also the name. Don't, don't miss the name. And God uses this experience to teach them and to teach us about who he is. He is Jehovah Rapha. This is the first, the first time he calls himself by this name, the Lord your healer, verse 26, which means that whenever he gets involved in the world or whenever he gets involved in your life, it is always to make the sad things come untrue. There's a paragraph in the brother's Karamazov, where Ivan, one of the brothers, he has this to say. He says it kind of cynically, but it bears true, even though I think he was a little cynical of it. He says, suffering will be healed and made up for. In the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, and make possible, make it possible to justify all that's happened. Those are beautiful words. Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments. Now, God is taking the world somewhere, we're told. He is healing everything that is broken. And the end will be so sweet that it will swallow up all the bitter. And if you believe that, and here's the thing, if you're not a Christian, let me just appeal to you. This is why Christianity is so great. Because if you're a Christian, if you believe that, if you've staked your life on the truth of God's promise to do these very things, then... You know the end of the story, and if you know the end of the story, it will transform every other plot line, no matter how bitter, into something sweet. It's possible to live that way, knowing 
that God is the God who heals. But there's a second lesson. And the second lesson of the parable of, of the miracle that is a parable is this, that it's possible despite all of that, despite the narrative arc, despite the name that God reveals here, despite all that God has proven himself in to us in the past, it's possible to still be bitter because the spring here is a picture of their hearts. They come across this bitter water and they name the place Mara because the water there is bitter and so are they. But why? What's happened to them? See, that's the question we have to answer, I think. And well, the first thing we should say is that they were faced with extremely difficult circumstances. Let's not make light of what's going on with these people here. This was a hard providence. They've been going, we're told, three days into the desert with no water. So it's a desperate situation. They are, they are dying of thirst, literally. And finally, at kind of the moment where you maybe they, you know, they can't go any further, they find water, they see, you know, they see the spring, and they think, oh, just in time the Lord's provided for us. And they run up, and you can imagine, if you've not had water for three days, how quickly are you going to gulp down the water you find? And this water is undrinkable. And so you can understand their disappointment. Let's not be too hard on them. But here's the thing. See, this is not the first time they've experienced something like this. Just, just previous in chapter 14, for example, they're trapped there. We read this last week at the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's armies are charging them. And it said there in chapter 14, this is 14 verse 10, if you have a Bible. It says, in that crisis moment, they cried out to the Lord for rescue. But here... Something's changed in them because in verse 24 of chapter 15, they're in this crisis moment again. But what we're told here, it says here, they grumbled against Moses and Moses cried out to the Lord for rescue. Now, here's what I surmise, that Moses' cry for rescue is not just for, for rescue from their thirst, but uh, maybe from experience, I think Moses was probably crying out from rescue from the grumbling people. What have you done sticking me with these people, Lord? But I want you to see it's a very different response. This crying out to the Lord in chapter 14, even complaining, the Bible says, you know, all over the place, that's an act of faith. But this, this right here is unbelief, and that's the point. They lost faith. They no longer believed God's power in his heart to save. And it happened that quick, right? Three days. I mean, that's how fragile faith is. And so... I think the lesson we learn is that the way they should have responded to this bitter spring was with curiosity and hope. The way we should respond to potential crises in our lives, the things that are really scary, is still with a measure of curiosity and hope. Not despair, not, you know, not discouragement even. Curiosity and hope. And here's how I think that might have sounded. Uh, if you could imagine with me the way they could have responded here, I think it would have been something like, huh. You know, the Lord's leading us, and he's brought us here after three days with no water, and here we are, and we can't drink this. You know, I wonder what he's going to do now. And if you can imagine them turning to the Lord to say, oh, Lord, you are always taking bitter things and making them sweet. You rescued us from Egypt. That's what you do. You've always done that for us every time, so surely you will do it again. And we don't know when, and we don't know how, but we know you. But it says here that this was a test. That God was testing them, verse 25. Do you see that? And, and what that mean, I think that means that it means something like this, that it was part of the curriculum. They're in school, okay? 
they're in school, and this was God's way of teaching them what they needed to know. Or if you want another analogy, it was a workout regimen to help them build the spiritual muscles they needed. So they were spiritually flabby, we might say, after all of those centuries in Egypt. So God takes them into the desert to train them out of their unbelief. And that's why he lets these things happen the way that he does. He's training them out of their unbelief. He's building their spiritual muscles of faith because they've lost faith. They're, and by that I mean they're, they're, no longer, they, they, they're no longer viewing their circumstances through the lens of who God is and what he does. They're allowing their circumstances to color their perception of who God is and what he's doing. And so they've lost the right perspective. Instead of remembering the air of Ark in the name... They could only see the bitter water, and being so blind to everything else made everything else bitter. And so it says that they began to grumble. And again, in chapter 16, it's the same thing, and then again in 17, it's the same thing. And so something, something here that Moses wants us to see, something here the Lord wants us to see, they grumble. And it might be understandable. I mean, but in the Bible, it's a really, really big deal. In Numbers, particularly, in Numbers chapter 21, for example, the people complain <laughs> to the, to, to they complain about what's happening in their lives, and God sends snakes to kill the complainers. Listen, that's in there. I'm not kidding. Look it up. I mean, if that, as if that's not enough, in Numbers chapter 16, a man named Korah grumbled against Moses. He thought he could, he could lead the people better than Moses could and led a rebellion to overthrow him. And it says the earth opened up and swallowed his whole family. I, they probably didn't teach that in Sunday school, so if you didn't know that was in there. God takes this seriously because it's an act of profound unbelief. Because what's happening is, is when you complain and grump, as the people did here, you're forgetting God, and that's a big deal. I mean, did you notice? Look what it says. Look carefully. It's slight. You've got you to see it here. It says they grumbled against Moses, verse 24. They grumbled against Moses. Now, that's fascinating because do you know what? They're not mad at Moses. He just happens to be the one there, not God. Moses is not making decisions. God is. And so they're really mad at the Lord. And, and in chapter 16, Moses has to remind them of this. He says, listen, you're grumbling, but you're not grumbling. You're not upset with me. You need to grumble against the Lord. He's the one you're really upset with, not me. I mean, God's the one you're upset with. And that's true most of the time in my experience, that complaining, complaining to God, is act, he invites that. It's actually an act of obedience and faith on our part. There are plenty of psalms where the psalmist just pours out complaints to the Lord, but just complaining. Complaining about a boss or about pastor about what's being not done right or what could be being done better it's avoiding the issue God wants you dealing with him he wants you dealing with him and what you see here is just an act of forgetfulness it's forgetting God but it's also an act of rebellion it's breaking faith with the Lord and so we tend to grumble like these people when we don't like the way things are going and we're not in control and we can't stand not being in control. And so the grumble is the way we push back with our will against what we don't like. So I remember when I was a child, my parents would tell me to do something and I didn't want to do it. Um, but back then, you know, I didn't really have a choice because my, my dad would whoop me, right? And so if I was told to do something, I knew I had to do it. But I knew I didn't have to do it joyfully. 
I could complain about it. And you see, you see what I mean? The complaint, the complaint was my protest. It was, I know I got to do this, but I'm registering my protest. It was a rebellion. And so grumbling is a reform of rebellion against God or what God, whatever God is doing or whoever God is using to do it. But remember, when you're tempted to complain and be angry, make sure you're angry with the person you should be angry with about what's happening in your life. And it's typically not the person that you think is thwarting you. It's typically that God is using that person in a way to do the thing he wants to do in your life that he's set to do. It's this rebellion because in our sin, we would be subject to none and we would have all be subject to us. But before we move on, let's not forget it's also hellish. And by that I mean it, 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 we have to figure out how to, to deal with this onset of grumbling that we all fall prey to because it will, if we don't, we'll find that we just go through life miserable. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote that, that grumbling, the problem with grumbling is that it eats all of the goodness and the sweetness out of all of God's mercies before they even come into your life. And uh, it makes the hard stuff even harder. <laughs> And so a grumpy heart left unchecked can turn everything bitter. It, it just becomes this downward spiral where if you allow yourself to give in to this complaining spirit in your heart, then, then you lose all taste for the sweet things God brings to you. C.S. Lewis uh, hauntingly wrote about this, and he said, Hell begins with a grumbling mood. Just think about that. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself in which you could stop it, but there may come a day when you no longer can. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each one of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. So how do we nip it in the bud? Can I offer some practical suggestions before we move on uh, to finish our time together this morning? How do you nip this, this propensity in all of us uh, to act out in rebellion by just allowing ourselves to become grumbling, complaining, moody people? And I think there's a number of different things I think I could tell you. First is, I would suggest start every day with a song. Start every day with a song. Start every meeting with a song. Go through your day singing because it's so easy. I mean, 15 minutes... 15 hard minutes in the morning can take my song away. I don't know about you. I typically lose it before 8 o'clock in the morning. Start every day with a song. Second, practice gratitude. By that, I mean uh, what, what we've started to do in our staff meetings, because I don't know if you know this, but church, church work can be really discouraging. There's a lot, you, know, you can find a lot of things to be discouraged about, and so we've just started our staff meetings to say, let's think of as many things as we can come up with uh, that we can be grateful about. What is God doing that's just amazing? And let's list it, and let's just pour through the list so that we overwhelm our hearts with all of the things that God is doing that we should be happy about. Practice gratitude. Have a gratitude journal. Do something to where your account, because, because, because the reality is for every one thing there is for you to be upset about, there's a thousand things for you to be grateful of. But you got to put your mind on those things. Thirdly, if you need to complain, because sometimes 
there really is cause for that. If you need to complain, whoever it's to, if it's to a spouse or if it's to a child or if it's to a teacher or to a boss or to a pastor or whoever it might be, let me just suggest that in the act of, of doing that, say 10 positive things for every negative because your heart and their heart, all of our hearts need that kind of ratio. And then my last piece of advice to you would be don't, don't complain just to voice the complaint. It's not good for your heart. If your goal is not to be helpful, then just keep it to yourself. So if you're going, if you're, if, if you feel led by the spirit to do that, be helpful, make it your goal to be helpful, be specific, be direct. Don't, don't send anonymous, right? Don't, and I, can I just say, don't use the visitor cards to send anonymous love notes to the staff about all the stuff that needs to happen in the church. Come talk to us about it. We want to talk to you about those things. We want to sit face to face to be helpful because it's just so discouraging otherwise. We really need to help one another with this. And so, do you see how hard it is to keep the right perspective? Isn't it hard? Anybody else? You're looking at, I'm all alone up here. So hard. So how do you do this? And, and let me just finish. We have just a couple minutes left with one. And let me finish by saying what we really need, what we really need to help us to keep the kind of perspective that we need is we need reoccurring experiences of the sweetness of God's grace. Because the opposite of grumbling is gratitude. I think we all can agree that the Israelites, even after three days with no water, should have been grateful. They still should have this abiding gratitude. So why weren't they? Well, the key to gratitude is to not have a lot of things to be grateful for. Your life can be full of good things and, and you still not be grateful. I know a lot of people like that, myself included. So the key is not to have a lot. That's not where gratitude comes from, not from having a lot, but that knowing that you deserve nothing. And so gratitude is the same word as grace. Well, flip that around. If you're grumbling, it's because you think that you deserve better. There's something that you don't have and you deserve to have it. You're not in control. And man, if God knew what he was doing, he would make sure you're in control. You're not making the decisions, but you should be because you do a much better job of making the decisions than whoever is making the decisions. This is why I'm so concerned about this for our church and for the people I love, because when a grumble starts, it means we're losing our grip on grace. Because grace banishes grumbling. Grace leads to wonder and worship. It causes, when you really understand the reality of grace, it causes your countenance to shine with humility and joy and wonder because you know, grace teaches, you know you deserve nothing. Now there's a connection here we shouldn't miss. The water, we're told, turns from bitter to sweet when they threw in the log. But the word there really isn't log. It really is the word tree, and that's significant because in the Old Testament, the imagery of a tree is symbolic of the cross. So you have like, a, the, like the phrase in Deuteronomy 21 where it says, cursed is everyone who dies upon a tree. And then Paul picks that up in Galatians 3 to talk about the cross. And so the cross, which is being alluded to here, uh, Jesus' death for us on the cross is the certainty that God loves us. And all that he does, he's doing good to us because Jesus drank the bitter cup. Jesus drank all of the bitterness and all that's left to us is sweet. That is, if your faith is in Jesus, you can be absolutely confident that whatever you're going through, you're not being punished, you're not being judged, you've not been forsaken by God. Jesus Christ endured all of that for you so that you could abide in God's love and God's love could abide in you. That's the sweet. That's the sweet. Not that things go the right way. It's better than that. 
It's that no matter what, even when it starts to go wrong, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But the cross also reminds us that all of it, all of it, is sheer grace, that we deserve nothing. We deserve the opposite of what we get due to our sins. We deserve the bitter cup. We deserve to be treated according to our rebellion. And yet Jesus got all that was ours so that we could get all that was his. We did nothing. Jesus did everything. That's our gospel. And to me, uh, this is the most important part of the story in Exodus 14. It's why I reached back to grab it again because they had forgotten so quickly. And, and I keep forgetting, and most of you do too, the part where God said in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to do nothing. So the way salvation works in Christianity is God works for you. He does it all. You don't get saved by doing. You have to stop doing in order to be saved. You have to be still. You have to have nothing. You have to have no words and no works, nothing, because it's sheer grace. And so look at what they're singing. Again, at the beginning of the chapter, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So God is our salvation. Now, please follow me here, okay? Because this is the kind of logic you need to work on your heart with. We do nothing. Can we agree on that? We do nothing. And if we do nothing, we deserve nothing. And if we deserve nothing, then if we get nothing, that should be okay. But we don't get nothing. We get sweetness. All the time, in a thousand ways. And that's why grumbling is such a big deal, because it neglects a thousand thank yous to focus on the one thing that isn't quite right. So what is the right perspective? What is the right perspective? It is this. The truth this morning for you and me, and let me just speak to myself. I have a thousand reasons to be grateful today. Anybody else? A thousand reasons to be grateful today. And maybe, okay, maybe one or two complaints. But which one am I going to focus on? Will I choose grumbling or gratitude? Will I view my life as a conspiracy to rob me of the things I think will bring me happiness and just pout and complain and blame other people? Or will I see that even in my disappointments and my losses and my greatest fears, the beating heart of the universe is a God who loves me and is loving me? And without me even knowing it is arranging for my ultimate joy. For the Christian, the issue's settled. Look to the cross. See Jesus dying there in love for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then you'll lose all taste for bitter things. Everything, everything will be sweet. Let's pray. And so, Father... In this quiet moment here at the end of our service, we, we do just bring our hearts and lay them before you to say, we are so prone to be forgetful. Uh, after a thousand kindnesses, one, uh, one thing going the wrong way can just get us so crooked. Uh, please forgive us. And work in our lives to change the way we think about these things. Strengthen us against 
the power of unbelief in our own hearts and move in us by the power of your spirit to humble us into gratitude, out of grumbling and into gratitude, to just lay us in the dust. Because what else does the cross teach us? Oh, what a cost it was to love, how hard we are to love. That it took the, the blood of the Savior to redeem us. And yet, the Bible says that you not only paid that price, but you did it joyfully, you did it willing, willingly because of your great love for us. Oh, how amazing. What cause for rejoicing we have this morning. And yet, how prone our hearts are to the, the opposite. Oh, Father, we're such a mess. Would you come and fix us? Would you come and work supernaturally in the bitter parts of our hearts? Give us taste buds for the sweet things of the Spirit that we might sing a song of praise to you because it's in that act of worship that we claw ourselves out of this pit we fall into. And so now in these moments, as we sing here at the very end, let that be our response to you, that we would lift our voices as an act of defiance against our own rebellious hearts because you're worthy of every song we would sing. And so we sing and we pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Those two things together are such good news that he is sovereign over us. He has all power and authority, but he's also perfect in love. Take either away and you have trouble, but when the two are together, what great news. Amen? What great news. Uh, the power of the gospel is such that when you really begin to believe it, <laughs> think about this. The power of the gospel can come into your life to do something about your moodiness. Can you imagine that? Wouldn't that be great? All the spouses look at their spouses and say, amen, that'd be great, right? Can you imagine that? But that is what we believe. Not only that we can have the power to go out into good things or to go out into bad things, whichever the Lord sends us to this week, and to say, my life, the circumstances of my life do not dictate who God is. God dictates how I see and think about my circumstances. But not just that, but the day-to-day, -day, the moment-to-moment dealing with disappointments, that there will be power in us to cut against our moodiness and to give us such an overriding joy that we begin to shine like stars in the universe in this dark, decaying world, doing nothing with complaining or grumbling. Man, that, that's good news. So that's what we've been called to do. Hear the words that, that empower you to go and do that. So receive these words of benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.